Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, for those that are experiencing that unease of silence this morning, maybe it's relational. They just don't quite know what more to say. They've said so much, and yet it seems like issues remain unresolved. They're not quite sure what more to say, what more to do. You're there. You're the God who chooses at times to remain silent, and you're the one who has declared himself through the word, the scriptures, and the Son, Jesus Christ. You've declared yourself to be involved in the issues that we face. And this great tension of God and suffering we've been exploring in the book of Job. I pray that as we still lay more more upon this foundation of understanding, that you will give us the perspective we need to be able to minister effectively among hurting people. And maybe there's somebody here this morning that's hurting. And I pray, Lord, that you will give guidance and direction at their point of need. So, Father, we're praying now once again that you would warm these hearts, that you engage these minds, that you would shape these wills. So again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. Praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. As July 20th, 1969 approached, there was incredible tension and turmoil throughout the nation. This was a nation that was intensely conflicted with the turmoil of the 60s. What was fascinating during that time was that Madeleine Murray O'Hare, renowned atheist, had entered into a legal battle with NASA. She had entered into the legal battle with NASA because in a prior, a prior mission to outer space, the book of Genesis was read as the astronauts were orbiting the moon at Christmas. And now we've got astronauts that have made their way. Made their way into orbit, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin, Buzz Aldrin and Michael Collins. It was July 20th, 1969, when their feet would set uh, firmly upon the moon. Collins would guide the module while Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin would begin their walk. Now, Newt Gingrich has a podcast going this week of an interview with Buzz Aldrin about that experience. What people don't know is that Aldrin had brought with him a, a tiny communion kit. been given to him by his church. And it was his intent to be able to experience communion while on the moon. And so he, that morning, radioed, Houston, this is Eagle. I would like to request, and I've marked this now, a few moments of silence. Picture this now. The nation is conflicted, polarized and fragmentized. And here is a man on the moon at this point. And what he would like to do is to, as he would go on to say, 
and challenge everybody listening, whoever, wherever they may be, to contemplate for a moment the events of the last hours. He would go on to write that in the radio blackout, I opened a little plastic package which contained bread and wine. I poured the wine into the chalice the church had given me. In the one-sixth gravity of the moon, the wine slowly curled and gracefully came up the side of the cup. And I read the scriptures. I read from the book of John. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me will bring forth much fruit. Well, you and I are told eagle's metal body creaked. He said, I ate, I drank, and I gave thanks to God who had brought these young pilots to what's known on the moon in their eyes as the Sea of Tranquility. And then added, it was interesting for me to think the very first liquid ever poured on the moon and the very first food ever eaten there were the communion elements where I was able to bring in a moment of silence the attention of a fragmented nation bring their attention to the fact that there is a God. Now, if we're to personalize this, and for the lack of a better word, relationalize this, there are times in life when we experience these moments of silence, and for some, it's rich and encouraging and constructive. For others, relationally, it's tense, creates agitation of spirit. There's something of a truce rather than the experience of a peace that has taken place among the people that have been alienated from one another. What you see now at the beginning of this chapter is that they have entered in these individuals, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zilphah, into a time of silence. Job is no longer speaking, but neither are the counselors. Somebody's going to have to step in and break the silence. And that man, his name is Elihu. He's the new counselor on the scene. And what he's about to do at this point is to tackle four significant needs that he finds in this conflicted relationship between Job and these individuals. Four significant needs that have to be addressed biblically, wisely, effectively that will bring honor to God. And so this morning, if you find yourself either in a conflicted relationship where there is this uneasy silence, or else you find yourself positioned as a counselor, as somebody who knows God's word, to be able to bring truth to bear upon the relationships that are fragmented. There's something here in this chapter for you and me to consider. Four needs. First comes out of verse 1 down through verse 5. 
that when offering new counsel in the midst of what we'll describe this morning as unresolved tensions, unresolved conflict, watch and note first of all with me the issues here needing to be addressed. Now, when you're about to counsel those who are conflicted, and there is this uneasy silence, you're going to have to take a step back and begin to analyze and evaluate, okay, what are the issues? Before I start offering my opinion, I've got to determine what it is that has to be addressed. Do you do that? Take time to observe. So now in the opening verse, these three men ceased to answer Job. Why? Here's their take. Because he was righteous in his own eyes. Now, what we need at this point is a refresher once again from Job chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. What God spoke of when he referred to Job at this point was that Job, we're not saying that he's sinless. What we are saying is that he is blameless. That was critically important to understand. In other words, the suffering that Job was experiencing was not based upon a particular sin that Job had committed. Something else is involved here. But you see, his counselors have accused Job of the fact that because he's suffering, he must have sinned, and now they've reached a point where they simply can't go any further with the argument. They've been silenced. It's an uneasy silence. But now, you saw in the end of the last chapter, the words of Job are ended. And so now, is this the sea of tranquility? At this point, then, they ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But then Elihu, the son of Barakel, steps forward. Elihu. His name means, my God is he. Now, you read a little further about him at this point, And we are told he is the son of Barakel, the Buzzite. Maybe he's related to Buzz Aldrin. I don't know. what this is. Or Buzz on Home Alone, God forbid. Regarding this whole matter, though, what you've got to understand at this point is that if you do a little study of his background and his setting, in some way, shape, or form, he must be the nephew of Abraham. This puts you right in the context, once again, of Genesis, the Older Testament setting. Where you see in the patriarchal period, Job living out his life. Now, here you and I are told that he is of the family of Ram. And when you read in the book of Ruth, you will find that at the very end of the book of Ruth, that Ram was an ancestor of David. David is an ancestor leading to Christ. Which means then that this new counselor, some way, shape, or form, is part of the lineage that runs through the story in the book of Ruth that points onward towards David, which points onward towards Jesus, which means now your eyes should be opening up to the way in which God progressively works out his strategy patiently, effectively, over the course of time to achieve his purposes, all for his glory and his honor, you see. There's so much here. Why did God raise up this man at this time to achieve this purpose? He's the new counselor on the scene. You and I are told not once, not twice, three times he's burning with anger. 
you ever have to discipline your soul, your spirit, because you're being required to be patient in the midst of conflict when there is a sense of agitation that's building up inside of you. In this case, he burned with anger, first of all, at Job. And the reason why is because we are told here that he justified himself rather than God. Is that true? Well, what's fascinating is that when you and I eventually, next month, get to Job chapter 40, we're going to be told in verse 8 that God is going to pose this question to Job. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? The question now is, Elihu, is Elihu being used by God to start prepping Job for the moment when God will speak? Now, what God will do sometimes with you in the midst of conflicted relationships is that while you might not be the one to resolve the tensions, he may position you to be part of the strategic approach whereby people are being pointed onwards towards Jesus. This is fascinating now. And so here on one hand, he is mad at Job. On the other hand, in verse 3, he's also mad at Job's three friends. You want to call them that? When verse 3, he burned with anger also at Job's three friends. Why? Because they had found no answer, although they had declared Job to be in the wrong. So now, he is guilty until being proven innocent, this Job, in their eyes. They can't explain why, but he's got to be guilty. After all, he's suffering. And suffering must mean that he must have done something wrong. But you see, they've got such a simplistic, restricted view of God's relationship to suffering. Their take is just simply, you're suffering because you sinned. Repent of your sin and you'll lose, you, and then your, your suffering will be removed. But is that always the case? Is there something more? They have a restricted view of the way in which God relates to sin and suffering. So, now Elihu is also upset with them. So Elihu, you and I are told in verse 4, had waited to speak to Job, because they were older than he. And when Elihu saw there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, he burned with anger. What was needed was patience during that period of time before he would address the issue at hand. I was reading in a biography of da Vinci, the one who painted the Last Supper. Da Vinci said, when asked about why it took him so long to paint it, quote, when I paused longest, I made the most telling strokes with my brush, unquote. Off to the side, my notes, I've got these words. Patience is power in reserve. Sometimes you've got something powerful to say. But you might have to hold it in reserve. Maybe the truth is obvious, but the time is not right. And so now, what you've got to be able to do is to determine when to pick up the brush. When, after a time of pause, you begin to apply your strokes to the canvas of conflict. 
Here then is Elihu. Though the youngest, my, he's showing, he's showing signs of wisdom. He's also demonstrating that he is a man of emotion as well as wisdom. He is a man who not once, twice, three times is described as being angry about the situation he's observing. Something's building up. He's agitated. And maybe something in your heart this morning is building up. You're agitated. You wish you could resolve a conflict that thus far has remained unresolved. You think you know the answer, but at this moment, you haven't been given the opportunity. Welcome to Elihu's life. And notice in verses 1 through 5, you start with the issues needing to be addressed, whether in the workplace, the classroom, the extended family, the issues needing to be addressed. Once you've determined what they are, you're ready then for the second need. Because the second need it flows out of verses 6 to 10. Second of all, I want you to notice with me the respect needing to be conveyed. Now you're going to have to demonstrate respect and communicate respect to the people who are conflicted. You might be conflicted with them. They are conflicted with one another. They might be internally conflicted as well. But what we've got to bear in mind is that one of the things that people value they value being respected. In the workplace today, one of the great challenges among workers is that you feel as though you're not being respected for what you do or for who you are. You put in your time, you put in the effort, but maybe you're not getting the degree of thanks that you think is, should be offered. Here's Elihu now, the son of Barak, the Buzzite, and he answered now and said, I am young in years, and you are aged. Stop right there. What he is demonstrating to the others is this. I'm self-aware. I'm younger than you guys. I haven't been around the block as many times as you guys have been around the block. You've got more experience than I do. So let's just put it out front because there might be a tendency because you're older and I'm younger for you to say that I'm going to be viewing this somewhat naively. I lack the experience at hand. What can you extract from this? What you extract from this is that there are times where in the midst of resolving conflicts, you're going to have to offer a sense of self-awareness. I know something about myself. You need to know that as well. I'm young in years. You are aged. Now he gives them a why. Why has he waited so long? I was timid, afraid, to declare my opinion to you. And so in verse 7, this is something of a compliment, isn't it? I said, let days speak and many years teach wisdom. But here's the problem. You know where it's coming from. Not everyone who grows old grows up. Years might produce wisdom. Or they might just recycle immaturity again and again and again. What we have to understand at this point is that there is a wisdom from below and there's a wisdom from above. And they can be in competition with one another. And thus far, what fascinates us is that the three counselors are religious counselors. 
They, in fact, talk about God to Job. The question is, but do they know God to the degree they talk about God? How do you break that impasse? In verse 8, you and I are told at this point that Elihu the counselor, who if we are figuring chronologies outright, is part of the line that will lead through Ruth onwards to David and onwards to Jesus, and will be the only counselor in the book of Job who will speak of messianic counsel in the next chapter, chapter 33. Fascinating. Though the youngest. In verse 8 says, But it is the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. In other words, Elihu knows something about God revealing truth. They might be dependent upon their reasoning with regard to God. He's more concerned with a revelation that comes from God. The person who steeps himself or herself in the scriptures is going to traffic with people that are incredibly intelligent, who have thought through a lot of life and have got a lot of life experience. They might know a lot about God, but when you know God through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, and you invest time in God's word, revealed truth, then what you have to do is to compare wisdom from below with wisdom from above. And now, what he is saying is that there is a wisdom from above that is revealed to those who are below. It's the spirit in man, the breath of the Almighty, that makes him understand. It is not the old who are wise, nor the aged who understand what is right. And now their eyes must be as big as saucers at this point. But he's already complimented them. And so he starts off with something positive about them. And now he's going to have to deal with the negative. When he says, therefore I say, listen to me. Let me also declare my opinion. What he has done is first of all, the issue issue. The issues needing to be addressed in 1 through 5. Spots them. If you're going to resolve conflict, you first of all have to spot them. Second of all, the respect needing to be conveyed in 6 through 10. And he is, from the very start, communicated respect for these individuals. Are you doing that in your relationships? <coughs> During the Civil War, Lincoln, who was under incredible political pressure, signed an order to transfer certain regiments from one field of battle to another. Get this. Edwin Stanton, his Secretary of War, refused to carry out the orders. Lincoln's a fool forever signing the order, Stanton said. Well, his words about Lincoln got passed on to Lincoln. What was Lincoln's response? This, this is special. If Stanton said I'm a fool, then I must be one. <coughs> He's almost always right about military matters. So I'm going to have to go to him and find out what his reasoning is. The historian tells us Stanton, much more knowledgeable 
in warfare than Lincoln, convinced his commander-in-chief of the folly of the order, Lincoln promptly rescinded the order, thus saving the Union troops from a disaster that otherwise would have cost thousands of lives. Now, Lincoln was willing and able to respect someone who disagreed with him. When you and I are trying to make our way through conflicted relationships that often have a deafening silence attached to them, an unresolved tension in our midst, begin with the issues needing to be addressed in one through five. Couple that second of all with the respect needing to be conveyed in six to ten. Are you doing that? Now you're ready for the third need. Because thirdly, note with me now the appraisal needing to be provided. The appraisal needing to be provided. Somebody's going to have to speak objectively into the issue of the conflict. Somebody's going to have to offer a thorough evaluation. An appraiser. The three friends older than Elihu have not done it. And Job, on the other hand, has defended himself, but not to the degree in which he's gotten his counselors to agree. And so there is this truce. Not peace. Truce. Now, when you see people together who have an uneasy tension about them, don't confuse truce with peace. The conflicts remain probably deep within. Maybe there's a history that still needs to be unraveled. So now here's, here's Elihu, and he's been studying this situation. He's the new counselor at the forefront. And he begins with a visual word. Behold. In other words, look. I've waited for your words. I listen to your wise sayings. Again, he's being respectful at this point regarding who they are and what they've said. Well, you searched out what to say. And you guys, you were searching. They need to know what comes next. I gave you my attention. I was concentrating. Another behold. Look. There was none among you who refuted Job. Don't rush past that statement. This is the first time that any counselor has mentioned the name Job in front of Job. You ever feel like you're nothing more than a number in life? It took the youngest man at this point to be able to personalize I'm sure now Job is leaning forward. Somebody knows my name. On the other hand, the counselors, I wonder if they've processed this. But Elihu is processing, and so do you, and so do I, in the midst of the conflictedness of this world that's been impacted by, by sin. I gave you my attention. Behold, there was none among you who refuted Job, who answered his words. And they've got to admit the fact that that's the case. 
So he says, beware lest you say we have found wisdom because you sure haven't demonstrated it, boys. God may vanquish him, not a man. He has not directed his words against me. And I will not answer him with your speeches. At this point then, what you and I find is that here's a situation where we've got a man who is willing to identify Job as a person and speak to Job in the midst of Job's personal sufferings. That goes a long way. Now Job is willing to listen. I came across this, an analysis of Ernest Hemingway. I've read a lot of his books, have you? When Hemingway was wounded in the First World War, doctors picked 237 pieces of shrapnel out of his body. As might be expected, he never forgot the pain, never forgot the experience. It was not so much the memory of the pain that stayed with him, though. It was how close he had come to death. He felt that it set him apart from the rest of humanity for the remainder of his life. And he recalled the men who shared the experience with him in the convalescent hospital, some of them with faces reconstructed, iridescent, shiny with the work of the plastic surgeons. They too were set apart by their brush with death. They too were suspicious of anyone who had not had the same shattering encounter. Other people seemed trivial, shallow by comparison. But now, this literary, literary analyst goes on to say, from this, from this Hemingway devised and derived a formula for his novels. You put a good man into a situation where he comes face to face with death, whether it be the arena fighting a bull or in combat, and then you'll see him in his truest dimensions. The trial will not make or break him. The trial will reveal him. The person who walks by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ understands something about the relationship of trials to truth. And there we have to trust in the midst of the trials based upon truth that's been revealed in the finished work of Jesus on that cross. And so here now is a situation where Elihu has not only assessed the issues, and he has offered the respect, he's appraising the needs at this point. There is a wisdom that these guys have, but their wisdom is limited. It hasn't fully resolved the tension, and now we've got a truce, not a peace. There is this uneasy tension that's creating this disquiet silence. So what he does now in chapter 32, he offers us one more need that has to be addressed. Comes out of 15 and down through 22. That fourthly, when offering new counsel in the midst of unresolved tensions, fourthly now, Note with me here the impartiality needing to be maintained. 
You got to maintain impartiality. You got to be objective. You can't allow your emotions to so pull you in at this point. You're going to say the wrong things at the wrong time to the wrong people. And so now Elihu, youngest of them all, beginning with verse 15, he says, They're dismayed. They answer no more. They have not a word to say. And shall I wait? Because they do not speak, somebody's going to have to break the silence. We've got unresolved conflict on our hands here. Because they stand there and answer, no more. We need objectivity. We need somebody to be able to look in, to see what others can't see, and to say what others are unable to say. And Christians love baseball, of course. And in the book, In How Life Imitates the World Series, Dave Boswell tells the story about Earl Weaver. He was a former manager of the Baltimore Orioles. And he had to handle the ego of a man named Reggie Jackson, star player on the team. Here's what Boswell says. Weaver had a rule that no one could steal a base unless given the steal sign. This upset Reggie Jackson because he felt he knew pitchers and catchers well enough to judge who he could and could not steal off of. So one game he decided to steal without a sign. Got a good jump off the pitcher, easily beat the throw to second base, and as he shook the dirt off his uniform, Jackson smiled and turned to the dugout and stared at his manager. Later, his manager... Earl Weaver took Jackson aside and explained why he had not given the steal sign. First, the next batter was a power hitter by the name of Lee May. When Jackson stole second, first base was open. So the other team intentionally walked May, taking the bat out of May's hands. Second, the following batter hadn't been strong against that pitcher, so now Weaver felt he had to send up a pinch hitter to try to drive in the men on base. And that left Weaver without bench strength later in the games when he needed it. Boswell says, The problem was this. Jackson only saw his relationship to the pitcher and the catcher. Weaver, the manager, was taking into account the whole game. Sometimes what you and I are going to find is that when people are so conflicted with one another, they don't take into account the whole. They're so caught up and obsessed with the part, their part. And then we have truce, not peace. We have an uneasy silence on our hands. Somebody's going to have to break in and speak truth. And there's Jesus who stands before Pilate. And Pilate's forced to ask the question, what is truth? As he's staring at the one who said, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. And so we are confronted with a culture of uneasy silence. Confronted with a culture that confuses truce with peace and peace with truce. Somebody's going to have to offer the wisdom from above to address the wisdom issues from below. 
And so in verse 18, Elihu, you see his humility once again. I'm full of words, he says. And if you read the next chapters, you're going to say, yes, he is. He just keeps on keeping on. I'm full of words. The spirit within me constrains me. Behold, my belly's like wine that has no vent, like new wineskins ready to burst. I've got to speak. I must speak that I might find relief. I must open my lips and answer. I will not show partiality to any man. And there's the reason for your fourth need. When on offering new counsel in the midst of unresolved tensions, note the impartiality needed to be maintained. And so when you are ministering to people conflicted in their relationships, family-wise, work-wise, education-wise, whatever it might be in the neighborhood, I will not show, imp show partiality to any man or use flattery toward any person. For I do not know how to flatter. And now he brings God back into the conflict. Else my maker would soon take me away. And what strikes us at this point is how he has waited patiently. What strikes us at this point is how he's a means of preparation leading to when God is going to eventually speak. What strikes us at this point is the prominence that God has given this young man to speak when all others are exhausted and remain silent. In the midst of the uneasy silence, wisdom is shared. And so there's Buzz Aldrin being interviewed this week by Newt Gingrich on his podcast. I would like to request a few moments of silence. He would say on that July 20th of 1969, the 50th anniversary about to be recognized this week. I had intended to read my communion passage back to earth, but at the last minute, Deke Slayton had requested I not do this. NASA was already embroiled in a legal matter with Madeline Murray O'Hare, celebrated opponent of religion, over the Apollo 8 crew reading Genesis while orbiting the moon at Christmas. But then he would say, Eagle's metal body creaked. Here's two young pilots position in the sea of tranquility. And it was interesting for me to think that in a nation that was highly conflicted, the very first liquid ever poured on the moon, the very first food eaten there, were the communion elements, as I was able to bring reference to God, to a broken culture. May God be the glory. Let's stand together. And what we need to do is to bring the sovereign God into the relational tensions of life. For some it's a family tension. For others it's a job-related tension. For some it's friendships. Neighborhood. We see it in our nation. See it in this world. A conflicted world because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But then the ultimate form of wisdom, the second member of the Trinity, stepped in to 
took our place on that cross, died so we might live. And a relationship with you produces the wisdom that is necessary to be able to address the conflicted relationships where people confuse truce with peace. And so, Father, for the uneasy silence that so many of us find ourselves in, I pray now, at the right time, with the right words, in the right setting, the grace of truth will be applied, resolution will be found, and God will be glorified. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.